What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this special episode from the archives. This is a golden oldie full of great evergreen advice for writers. It's a rerun, basically. Whilst we work on something very, very special. Or very, very special indeed. We were so young and naive, weren't we, Mark? Oh, we were, but our guests, our guests were brimming with wisdom. So enjoy. And we'll be back next week with a brand spanking new episode of The Bestseller Experiment. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we discover what makes a best-selling novel while trying to write, publish and market one in just a year. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe and welcome to this very special episode of the Bestseller Experiment. So, Mr. Stay, we finally have him in the studio. Well, we've had him in the, well, we, not in the studio, we've had our guest previously. We did speak to him at Galantzfest. In fact, we've been, we've been using your name to tout our podcast ever since we started. <laughs> the people have been going, when's Ben Aronovich coming on the bloody show? And part of the problem was we did speak to Ben about what was then his forthcoming book, The Hanging Tree. It's since been published. It's since been a major, major bestseller. Um, so a lot of what we spoke about is kind of irrelevant now, but we thought it'd be great to get him back in again because we know he's, he's fantastic to talk to. So Ben, uh, let's introduce you to the listeners uh you've been writing i think your breakthrough was writing a, a doctor who series you've written all sorts of tv since and you're now the best-selling author of the sunday times best-selling peter grant series which started with rivers in london which was i guess about eight nine years ago now uh no i wrote it in 2009 and it was published in 2011 okay how time flies i know <laughs> I know. I think I just blanked out my life before that happened for a good 20 years of that was pretty awful. So I, I just don't think about it. Well, that's, that's interesting because there is a bit of a gap in the CV, isn't it? I mean, you had this incredible start. You're writing what many Doctor Who fans consider to be one of the best series of all time, which was Remembrance of the Daleks, which I think was it four episodes, Sylvester McCoy. How, how did that come about? Oh, oh, basically, um, in those days, script editors were quite important in, um, television, the way television was structured. So the way to get into television, you must always send your script to a person because you send it to whom it may concern and it just ends up in a rubbish bin somewhere. And, um, I, I picked out a script editor and I sent a sample script in and, uh, it was a, a very nice lady called Caroline Alton. And she said, what do you like doing? And I said, I like crime and science fiction. She said, well, uh, write a script for Brockless Babies and a script for Doctor Who, a sample script, and I will pass them on to the relevant script editors. And that's what happened. And had Rockless Babies gone for another series, I would have been writing for that as well, and history would have been different. Were you a Doctor Who fan beforehand? 
the, the, the word fan, right? It's a very <laughs> difficult one because someone asked me whether I was. And back then, I thought a fan was someone who, you know, watched the program on a regular <laughs> yeah. basis. Okay. I had no conception of what the word fan meant. Even then, fan meant a completely, especially Doctor Who fan, yeah, yeah. meant a completely different thing. So I have to say with my hand on my heart, in what what people mean by a fan? No, I was a guy. I liked it and I watched it because it was science fiction. But I wasn't a fan. Fan. I always find that really funny. But I said yes because I didn't know what a fan was when they asked me that. And now I'd be like, oh, he was a fan writer, and I find that very hilarious. If you were a big fan, Ben, though, it would have been probably way too much pressure, wouldn't it? I I don't know. You see, I I was twenty. I was young, and I was stupid and naive. And when you're young, stupid, and naive, you don't know what pressure is because you have no idea what it is what you're actually doing. So you just charge in and go, "Yes, I shall write this. It shall be the best thing ever." And which is a good thing. I, I recommend that attitude for all starting writers because. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's a bit like that bit in Blackadder when, when, um, George says, yes, I'm ready to go at the Hun. And <laughs> General Melcher says, yes, if nothing else, total inability to look face facts will get us through. <laughs> and if we're writing, that's good advice. <laughs> Did you have a, 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 a sort of a game plan at that point? Did you have a bigger, a career plan? Did you have a name? Or was there something else? <laughs> There's no career plan. Sorry, I forgot I was talking to you then. <laughs> There's no career plan. You don't have a career plan. It's like all this advice where they say, look for an agent. They say, check the agent does what? No, you apply to every single agent in the book. <laughs> right? God, it's like, you know, you don't, you know, you know check the publisher. No, send it to every single bloody publisher in the artist and writer's handbook and then look some other ones up on the internet and send it to them as well. This, this kind of like... <laughs> There is no careful plan because what you are relying on is somebody has to really like the book and everyone's different. So there's no point carefully researching what they usually like. You just send it to everyone on the off chance that one of them will like it. And they don't like that because that means they get a huge reading pile. Well, color me not very impressed, right? I don't care. That's not my problem. <laughs> Your reading part so is not my problem. Hire some interns, you know, get, get work your way through them. <laughs> so, Ben, take us back to that moment when, you know, having thumbed through the entire writer's directory and uh, you got your letter back. How, tell us tell us a story of when that moment Well, happened. I mean, the Doctor Who one, I did the other thing and, and they, I just ended up kind of, I got sucked into the process. So that was much more kind of like methodical. So you wrote the novelisation of the series, is that right? Uh, I wrote the novelisation of my story. In those days, W.H. Allen, as was... Um, offered automatically offered you the chance to write automatically, automatically offered the writer the chance to write the novelization. And if you didn't want to do it, Aunt Uncle Terence was always available to do a knockoff. And of course, we, our generation, just all went, yes, a chance to get paid to write, learn how to write prose. Yeah. So I, that was the first thing I'd ever written over. I have to say, apart from a script, it was the longest bit of prose over, I think, 2,000 words I'd ever written in my entire <laughs> life. Wow. So, but again, it it was like that kind of, I will write the best novelization ever because I don't know any better whatsoever. <laughs> so, you know, I just my copy of Neuromancer in one hand and a. <laughs> Oh, was that your was that your guide? Was no, that... no, it was Count Zero. I think Count Zero. Count Zero. I mean, I'd read it tons, but Count Zero was the first book where the style was important. Right. 
Right. Where I, it was, it was the transition from just like reading, oh, cool spaceships to actually, oh, style of language actually makes a difference. And that, I mean, William Gibson, I mean, that was, um, that was pioneering stuff there as well. Wasn't it? Well, everyone thinks William Gibson, like, they go, oh, that was like, the thing about William Gibson was the site was the shades and the computers. No. The thing about William Gibson was the way he used language to describe the technology and the way he used technological metaphors and applied them to, to um to real life you see and people weren't doing that and he was and they weren't doing that in science fiction and he started doing that in science fiction and um so it does you know it's not about so cyberpunk really wasn't about you know cool women in dark shades on, on rainy streets although you know that was cool yeah, i'm perfectly yeah, down with yeah, that yeah. it was about the way you use language to describe technology and society and things like that uh i mean for me it was anyway your mileage may vary so I use that as a kind of style guide for writing and June because I just read that. Right. You know, I was basically a, 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 an amalgam of all my various kind of like the last eight books I'd read, basically, like most young people. And I didn't know what I was doing and I just did it. So did you go back and look at those and look at things like sentence structure and how chapters were laid out and how, how you know, you talked about the use of language as well. Did you look at it at a sort of granular level? Uh No. I never look at things like that at a granular level. <laughs> I'm not a granular writer. <laughs> the, the whole worship of the sentence is a very Guardian literary thing. You right. know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's the sort of thing that gets discussed on, on the open university. <laughs> and, and, and actually, you see, it's, it's to disguise the fact that most, what's mostly generally considered literature is terrible. So they, it's got lovely sentences, but it's just mostly crap. So it's crap with lovely sentences in the same way that, you know, most science fiction is like really good ideas with bad writing. So uh, it's really good writing with no real substance. And that's why, like, when a book comes along that does both, everyone goes, oh, my God, it's so brilliant. <laughs> so like a wolf hall, like, you know, good substance and... Yeah. Written in a literary style, so everyone goes, "Oh, it's the best book ever written." Uh, <laughs> yeah. It took me ages to work my way through that. <laughs> what was the first transition, Ben, that you made when you kind of moved from writing for Doctor Who and then deciding to write a novel? Was it a decision you made, or was it an opportunity? No, no, I, I had my career went funk. <laughs> I, I I woke up one morning and found I wasn't, I didn't have a career. Uh, Television is like, and the media generally is like, it's like a bus. You get on the bus, and once you're on the bus, you move around alongside the bus. If you fall off the bus, you're left sitting on the tarmac while the bloody thing is receding into the distance. And and it takes you a tremendous amount of effort to get back on the bus. And it literally took me 20 years to get back on the bus. And wow. strangely, the route that I took, you see, I'd spent... 15 years running like crazy trying to get on the back of the bus writing scripts and then I I was broke and working for Waterstones which is why I was working for Waterstones because I was broke and I liked working for Waterstones but you don't get rich working for Waterstones yeah, as a bookseller and in fact if you live in central London like I do you can't even break even so I was looking at bankruptcy and I was shelving books I'd been there about a year and I was shelving books and I ran the science fiction and the crime sections because they said, what do you, you know, what do you like? Science fiction and crime. You see, this is history repeating itself. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I noticed I was putting people on the shelves that I'd never heard of before. So they'd actually been commissioned and had written books and been published in the year that I'd been working for Waterstones. And I thought, well, if it's that easy to get published again, you know, <laughs> invincible ignorance. Okay. <laughs> Um, and, and by compared to television, where it is almost, you know, it was almost impossible to get commissioned. 
um, unless you are sleeping with a producer or something. Um, and even then, it's quite hard. Uh, you know, you, you, you have to, yeah, I thought compared to that, it is actually easier to get a book published because there's more outlets. There's more people to send your work to. There's more people who can make a go decision. There's only three people who can actually make a go decision in British television. Right. So you, if you don't, none of those three people like you. Then, and, you know, they're surrounded by layers of, of, of people who just get in the way and, um, insulation. And, but in the book, there's lots and lots of publishers. There's actually lots and lots of publishers. And in the, in final events, you can also publish yourself now, which is nice. So, um, I thought, right, I'll write a book. And I, I looked up and there was the crime. There was the science fiction. <laughs> and I thought, what have I got? And I thought, ah, oh, I can't be bothered to write. Because I, I like both of them equally and I couldn't work out which one I wanted to write. So I thought, I'll write one that does both yeah. and save time, right? And, and, um, I, I sat down and I, I kind of rummaged through my brain for the various ideas that had been floating around. Cause I had like 20 years of accumulated good ideas that had not been used on anything or had, had been put into abortive script ideas or gone down into the kind of development spiral of death. <laughs> and, um, so, and so, you know, I had quite a lot of ideas to pick from and I picked up the one that was, was called at the time magic cops. Right. It was literally called Magic Cops about until about five minutes before publication. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I, and I said, right, this is good. And I sat down and I just mulled that in my head and thought, well, this and that and that. And then suddenly, sort of Peter Grant walked into my head, and and I wrote the first, what is essentially the first two pages. And and I looked at it and I went, this is going to sell. I just knew it would sell. I, I didn't know it was going to become a bestseller, but I knew it was going to sell. I knew that sooner or later someone would buy it. It was I just could just feel the talent. And one of the advantages of being an experienced writer is you know when you have got something hot right. objectively. Mm. You can feel objectively so you always think you've got something hot when you're when you're it's your work but you can actually feel it you know the difference between that and like something i've been writing like six months earlier i could just felt it i just went oh that works this is tasty this is going to work and so it was just a question of then writing it and you know getting up really early in the morning and and writing it and trying to sort of like keep body and soul together until i got paid basically so Ben, with when you had that moment with Peter Grant, what was it specifically that gave you that feeling? Can you remember? It was it was the voice. It was the voice. I mean, the Peter Grant books are written much to the annoyance of quite a large number of pedants in the vernacular, <laughs> and you'd um, be amazed number of complaints. Oh, why does he say me and because you know, he's written in the vernacular? Oh, I'm thinking of getting a T-shirt made up with the words <laughs> with the definition of the word vernacular written on it, and then on the back it would have what I write books in. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and I don't know there was just something about his voice it was just that line you know uh, sometimes I look back on the wisdom of my father who used to say who knows why the fuck I don't know it just I, there was just something about the tone there was just something about the tone of his voice and I just thought this is this is good this is a guy who people are going to warm to I'm, I'm warming to him he's going to and people will like him um, and and essentially uh, unless, you know, unless you're writing for The Guardian, most, or The Telegraph doesn't have to be The Guardian, um, a character that people like is quite important. Well, it's clearly worked for you because we're in, what, we're five, six books now, comic books, and, you know, there's a novella coming as well. It's, I mean, can you see yourself 
writing Peter Grant for the foreseeable future? Well, I have, I have a, this is the only question that I always get asked whenever I do a session. <laughs> and so I have a stock answer for oh, it now. No. So you'll like the stock answer. It's a good stock answer. It's because I will stop writing it if A, it stops, becomes boring for me. Yeah. Right. B, people stop reading it. In this case, there isn't any point. Or C, I can afford a yacht. <laughs> and I don't mean like, a little eight meter catch. I mean, a Bramovich, James Bond villain <laughs> yacht with two helicopter landing pads and one of those control rooms that look like it's you, know, you can launch a rocket from it. Uh, and at that point, apparently, I've been informed I'll probably have to keep writing because the actual yacht is actually the cheapest thing about having a yacht is buying the yacht. <laughs> Running the yacht costs about the same price as the yacht every year. So um, as a rule of thumb. So, uh, yeah, so the answer is I probably won't ever stop writing these until I'm dead. And you see, and unlike people like Ian Rankin and uh, Colin Dexter, I made sure my detective was younger than I am. So I'm not going to have that problem where he reaches mandatory retirement age and I have to write that tricky novel where he retires and then somehow comes back to the police force. Yeah. I'll be dead before that happens. <laughs> so <laughs> forward planning. So you asked about planning, now forward yeah. planning. That do you write every day? Yes, I do. Okay. And what's your, what's your word count every day? Bad. Give us what's an example of bad. <laughs> well, really bad is no words whatsoever. <laughs> That's not writing every day then. No, it is writing every day. Trust me. <laughs> you can write, you can sit down at the bloody thing and, and come up with about five words. Oh, I suppose it's about five words. It counts as no words. It's about five. You know, I don't know. I don't, anything under 200, I don't really count as getting any work done. But are they, Good words. I mean, we'll, we'll talk to people who talk about, you know, 2,000 words a day or whatever, and you wonder how good they could be. But uh, uh, for you, is, if you get 500 words done, are they good words, words you're happy well, with? There's, there's three basic types of writers that I've, in my experience. And this is a spectrum, so there's kind of like people in between. But basically, there's people that write and revise. And generally, I've noticed the most people who've trained as journalists are like this, and I hate them. They, what they do is like three or 4,000 words and then a day, and then they cut it down. So they just cut and then they revise it and, and improve the text. And then there's people like me who are kind of like worrying about the and. Hmm, that and. I'm not sure about that and. You know, and, and it, that makes it very slow, but we don't have to do so much revision because we're, we're happy with the sentence. If we've written it down, then we're probably happy with the sentence as it is, and we don't revise. So there's less wastage. And and then there's people who write fast and well, and we just hate them. It's funny. We had Sarah Pimber on here, and she was saying that she doesn't write every day. She does a lot of thinking. A lot of th is thinking time important to you? <laughs> thinking about the story, or is that procrastination? That's procrastination. And how are you on procrastination? I'm excellent. There, I, I like to think of myself as one of England's finest procrastinators. <laughs> I feel I feel that very few people can waste time quite as well as I can. I mean, I can waste time in ways that that even you know the cast of Shameless would have. To <laughs> what are your top tips for procrastination? <laughs> uh, well, you know, there's obviously Twitter, which is like a good source of procrastination. I can waste time with Twitter, and I ration myself. I only like log onto Twitter like every so often, but I still manage to waste time. Uh, YouTube is not the internet generally is just a very good source of procrastination. Then there's reading research books. Then there's going and looking at locations. Then there's. Um, 
working on another project that's just occurred to you that's got nothing to do with the actual project you're supposed to be doing at the time, <laughs> which is my favourite. And and uh, and then there's watching TV because, you know, you need to input stuff into your brain. But all of this, I mean, while this is going on, surely the story's ticking over in the back of your head. Do you find there are moments when uh, sort of a light bulb goes off and you think, ah, that's a solution to a problem I was thinking I, about? Yeah, but you cannot distinguish it from all the other stuff. So, you know, I can't really hand on heart say that I'm doing that when I'm not. Well, I'm just going. Uh, but, but looking at locations isn't <laughs> looking at locations is an interesting one, you know, because surely that must in, inspire you a bit. Yes, I mean, you have to go to locations. Research is very important. I mean, I say it's procrastination, but research is very important because for me, because it, it makes writing easier. I find the more research I do, the more going to locations, having look, the easier it is to write because the words are sort of like, the, it's there. I don't have to make shit up. Mm. So um, the more stuff that's real, the easier it is to write. That That's kind of like my motto. And the more, and, and so you get like something and you can get that. You see, the thing is, it's very difficult. You have to say what is procrastination, what is research? So um I just try and sit down and write. And I mean, I'm very, 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 very slow writer. I don't know anyone as slow as me. I think 500 words a day is fast pace, right? And like my other writer friends just laugh at me and point. You know, when we have like writer get-togethers, they just laugh and point. It's, it's embarrassing. Well, you're clearly doing something right, though, you know? Yeah, but you know, Arsenal, that was a year late. Oscar <laughs> <laughs> Lance about that. They would much rather have had it a year earlier and slightly not as good, to be honest. <laughs> Do you not think, though, Ben, that the, uh, the idea of going away and doing research on location is just an excuse for a kind of expenses paid holiday? Uh, no, because most of my locations are in London. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just thinking about people that go off to like Morocco and and all no, these no, extravagant you, places. No, no, because you need to actually smell the places. This is this is really important because you can Google Earth only gets you so far. Reading about it only gets you so far. You actually have to go and kind of sniff the place. You have to. I, I can't explain it better than that. You have to get what it smells like, what it tastes like, and these are things you can't get from visual medium. So <clears throat> no matter how many kind of like documentaries you read about Morocco or something, you can't explain what that sand smells like, what the, what a bazaar smells like, what are, what are the, what is the souk smells like, or what, are, what do they really smell like? What does camel shit smell like? You know, I don't know. I've never been near a camel. <laughs> so if I was writing, so the first thing I'd do is like, if I was writing something like involving camels is I'd go down London Zoo and smell a camel. You know, because that's yeah. very important. Because you, 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 then you get the because the camel's got. Some, I, I mean, I, I say that because I actually did that. Right? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, have you, have you ever been ejected from London Zoo? No, then? no. I, I asked if I could go. I didn't, you know, stick my nose in its fur. You don't have to actually stand <laughs> at all close to a camel to get a good whiff of them. You know? they're, not, they're, they're very fragrant beasts. You don't have to sniff them up close. <laughs> a distance is fine. You just have to be downwind of them, really, and. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, yeah, I went. But I went. I went actually to look at elephants. I was writing something. I can't remember why I needed to look at an elephant. But I needed to look at an elephant. I wanted to see how it moved and and what. It, and the thing is, it, it's just you suddenly when you look at an elephant on a video, 
think, wow, that's a big beast. When you stand next to one <laughs> and realize that all it has to do is lean slightly to the left and you're dead, yeah. <laughs> it's a completely yeah. different, you know, you just think, to, to it, I am nothing. I'm like a mouse. It was like, oh, oh, sorry. Is that your head? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and that's then you suddenly get a better idea of what an elephant is really is when you do that, when you get that, and what they smell like. And and that is that's true of everything. It's true of tube trains and buses and people and locations and rivers and all the other things that make up a, a good book. And and you you got to meet a lot of people, and this is always a problem for writers because we're usually introverts. Uh, but you have to make yourself go out and meet a wide range of people. And the wider range of people you meet and you get to know, the easier it is to write a wider range of people. I know that's one of the issues that in, in writing these days is, is, you know, diversity in writing and without stereotypes. And the easiest way to avoid stereotypes is just get to know a lot of large number of people. And then you don't, you won't write stereotypes because you know a large number of people and you just won't write them because you won't be relying on or sort of received, I'm making air quotes, uh, received with wisdom you will be relying on your own kind of experience which is much always much broader so the broader you can make your experience you don't have to have a lot of depth but you need to have a lot of width when you've um when you've spoken to people sort of out in the field and i i, I imagine you speak to police officers and people like that because you it's procedural in this as well i mean uh, what are your favorite moments do you get nice surprises from these is there anything that's kind of informed the story made you think completely rethink a story for example uh, well, I mean, the, the nicest surprise to come for Phil was uh, someone who, uh, when I wrote the book for the very first time and I was doing a signing and, um, uh, a lady came up to me and said, Oh, my, my, my old man was a, a copper for 40 years. And he said he worked with every single one of the coppers in this. He'd worked with them, right. meaning like the type of copper. So everyone from <laughs> Stephanopoulos to Peter, to, he said he worked with a seawell. He worked with one of those right. in his time at the Met. And that, that was very pleased because, you know, you worry when you make up a character like Stephanopoulos or seawell that maybe I'm going over the top with this, but no, that was comforting. And yeah, people come up with things like they'll describe some kind of police procedure or you'll, you'll, or you'll be reading like the, the, Blackstone's manual for police, you know, there are all these books for teaching you how to be a policeman. Um, and they go through them, they have the most wonderful acronyms. And I, I have enormous fun with the acronyms mm -hmm. and stuff like yeah. the sad chalet and things like that. And, and, uh, and you just read them and they just give you ideas or like, and you know, they come in, they give you forms and they, they explain how forms will work. Things like the word action and the fact that it's used as a verb, you know, to action, I action this, you action that. I had a lot of fun with that. All these things are just very, very useful. And it makes you appreciate. So you're watching something like Happy Valley. And you realize that Happy Valley is a very realistic, yeah. you know, police show. And you watch something like Silent Witness and you go, ha, 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 that's crap, <laughs> right? It's like on every level, but so, something like Happy Valley or Scott and Bailey, yeah. you recognize like real police working stuff. They, they, they make a lot of effort to make it kind of as realistic as possible, yeah. which is hard on TV because TV is not a very good medium for realistic tea because the thing about policing is it's all about systems and systems are very boring on tv no one wants to watch people doing so that's why scientists are very rarely on tv unless they're cackling so ben with regards to uh obviously the crafting side is something uh, we're completely stuck with right now we're in the middle of this 
crazy experiment of trying to write a novel in 52 weeks. So we thought we'd kind of tap into some of your wisdom and uh, give you a bit of a view as to where we are right now. We're in this position where Mark's racing to the end of the book. He wants to get the book finished. And I keep going off on these crazy diversions down the all kind of blind alleys. What do you do when you get those kind of you know, squirrel ideas where you're writing a book and you suddenly get another idea. Do you tend to follow it or do you just kind of stick to the plot? Uh, I don't write like that. (laughs) (laughs) I very rarely know what the plot is to start when I start the book. I usually have like a vague idea of what's going to happen. I mean, because I trained as a script writer, I have a kind of script writer's attitude. So I'm like a four act person. So I usually know where the first turning point, second turning point, third turning point. I have a rough idea of what they are. And I usually know what the big thing at the end is going to be, right? Um, But what I don't know is how we're going to get to those points. And what usually happens is I start writing and the characters start going off in all sorts of directions. And I'm going, no, get back in that plot, you (laughs) bastards. And things like characters who I didn't think were going to be characters suddenly turn up. Like half the bloody characters in in that people love now go, oh, wow. Can't we have more of this one? Are characters that were just there to do things like open the door, <laughs> or they were literally, literally the equivalent of those kind of characters in Shakespeare that walk in and go, "The king is dead." <laughs> it's like it's like if you imagine Hamlet, where Rosencrantz and Guildenstern won't leave the stage, right? <laughs> That's basically my life as a writer. Okay, they just they just they just get on the stage in the middle of Hamlet and they just go, you know, we're, we're lucky here. We like Denmark. We're going to hang about for a bit. And and, and you know, and like, and and they have the thing. It is literally for me. It is as if Rosencrantz is going to go ham it in the middle of a soliloquy and go, you know, you're just too gloomy. Let's get drunk or something like that. You know. So because of that, and because my characters frequently refuse to do what I tell them anyway, um, I basically just. I'm just on it for the ride. I just basically just keep going. I mean, you, you could argue some of those minor characters are kind of diversions, aren't they? Do, do they sort of get out of control? You just find you're having so much fun with them, you keep writing them, and then they become something else? Well, I'm not sure fun is the right word to use. That <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I don't know, because for me, yeah, but that's part of the fun of the book. I mean, most people don't read my books for the plot. I don't think they read the books for the plot. I think they like the characters and they like the fun things and they like the humour. And and if the plot makes sense at the end, that's like a bonus. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I like the plot to make sense. I think the plots make sense. But, you know, sometimes I get to the end and I think, okay, (laughs) that kind of made sense to me. I wonder if it makes sense to anyone else. So... Plotting is very important. I mean, plotting is what separates, you see, a good, well, I don't know, look, there are two components to a book, right? There's the storytelling aspect and there's the, um, there's the the actual prose that you use to tell the story. And the truth of the matter is the storytelling aspect is the most important aspect for, for your purposes for best selling, right? If it's, if you're telling a good story, right, the prose can be crap. And if you think about it, like, uh, for commercial fiction, story is more important than prose. Whereas in the, that's the separation between that and literary fiction, where you have really brilliant prose and no story whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the sort of separate, if you want a genre separation between the two genres, between literary fiction and all the other genres, then the literary fiction genre is defined by the fact that it has no story. 
you see. So I would worry about the story and then worry about the prose second. If you're really, you know, cynically trying to get a bestseller, then the story is the most important thing in the book. Mr. DeVoe's being very naughty. He's asking you a very leading question there because we've, this week we've, um, we're still on the outline. We're still at, it's a, I mean, it's, 55,000 words long, this outline. Your outline is 55,000 <laughs> yeah. words. And I just want to finish I'm this bastard outline. No, no, let me stop you there, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is your problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. writing a 50, I wouldn't write a 500-word outline. For fuck's sake, 55,000 <laughs> words. That's not an outline. That is just a form of self-flagellation. <laughs> oh, God. That's the phrase I used. God, you should be able to get the plot points of your novel onto one page of A4, right? We tried. Yeah. If you couldn't, <laughs> writing 50,000 words isn't going to disguise the fact. One page of A4 as a beat sheet, you should be able to do it, okay? One page. And then you should start writing the novel. Because you guys are procrastinating. Okay? <laughs> you want to know what procrastination is? 55,000 word outline. Unless your novel is 250,000 words long, right? You are doing something wrong. It's early days yet. Okay. <laughs> now, well, I think what Spacey, what Spacey happens, I, we've, we've ended would, up working on the outline and then started kind of playing with the characters and we are really writing the book i mean we have got the plot down on one sheet of paper as a diagram yeah no the no problem. i mean outline is the wrong word no no to quote yoda right <laughs> <laughs> write or do not write there is no outline <laughs> okay <laughs> you, you're doing it this wrong. <laughs> That's why I want to get to the end so I can start the bloody no! properly. Forget the bloody outline. <laughs> <laughs> the outline is an illusion. I like to know where I'm going. It doesn't. You don't know where you're going. You've spent fifty-five thousand words on an outline. That is not someone who knows where they're going. <laughs> that is someone who is waffling to cover up the fact that they don't know where they're going. Right? No. God's sake, 55, that's a novella. <laughs> I've just got Wait. paid money for that. <laughs> I would consider 55,000 a really good six months' work. <laughs> we did start October. Bloody hell. Oh, I've got brilliant. friends who would have written a novel by now, and I'm not talking about a short novel. James Swallow would have written a novel, a best-selling thriller, and he would have had it out by now. And he writes outlines, but not 55,000 words outlines. God's sake, no. Look, you want my advice? You are wasting time. Sit down, start page one, start writing the book. Worry about the end of the book when you get there, right? When you've got up to, when you've got the words under your belt, that's when you worry about the end of the book. You are getting this all wrong. I mean, I'm not biased, but 55,000 words, that's just appalling. That's, that's just depressing. 55,000, oh God. You guys got too much time on your hands. You need, you need to get a hobby or something or a full-time job other than the full-time job you've got. Because Jesus we're gonna... Christ. Look, J.R.R. Martin, right? His outlines, that's probably like four books of outlines of J.R.R. Martin. He's got the winds of winter by now. For God's we sake. Need to show, we, 
We need to show Ben what we've actually done, though, Mark, because I think we're getting when I when I look at some of the some of the actual fifty five thousand words, there are pages of yes, no, I understand written. the concept. Yes, where where they're almost a full, but the yeah, thing yeah, is, yeah. it isn't. Yeah, right. It's an outline. <laughs> what you want to do is you want to actually start writing. It's a psychological thing, right? The outline is you not wanting to start the novel. You only get a oh, fifty-five. No, I'm, in, I'm into. I mean, this is it. I'm in. I'm not. This isn't. You know, we are writing it. It's there's a lot of dialogue. There's not a lot of texture yet. No, 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 no. We haven't got out. Writing we, it because we've not got out to smell anything yet. You've got a fifty-five thousand word outline that is not writing a novel that is procrastinating. Okay, <laughs> you guys need to sit down, start writing chapter one. Trust me on this. Okay, you will thank me. In about a week's time, just sit down, <laughs> write bloody chapter one. Okay, come back to me when you've written chapter two. Okay, now when you've written the first twenty thousand words, mm-hmm. you will f- you will know you will finish it. Right. Okay, that is the point. For I think most people agree that once you've got about the first ten to twenty thousand words, then you're pretty certain you're actually going to finish the novel. Right. Before that, it's just like, I've got a novel in me. But at the moment, what you're doing, it doesn't matter how much good stuff is in the outline. It's not in the novel yet. <laughs> right? And you're going to have, what you're doing is you're trying to avoid doing the difficult bit. And the difficult bit is page one. <laughs> Opening line. <laughs> That's the difficult bit. That's the bit that separates I've got a novel in me, right, from I am a writer. If you see what I mean, that is the crucial thing. It is, the, is the, that is the difference. The first chapter is what separates I've got a novel in me and I am a writer. You have to get that first chapter done because you're just pissing about now. Well, look, this, this, this will bring us uh, smoothly on to question of the week, which is uh, from a friend of the show, Lawrence Doherty, who says, can you write too many drafts? Is there a danger of losing the essence of the idea that got you writing in the first place? Where do you stand on that? <laughs> Entirely, no, I feel sorry for this question of the week because I'm entirely the wrong author <laughs> to ask that. If you ask my editors, right, that question, they'll go, drafts? <laughs> ben does drafts? I don't do drafts. I just about finish it in time for my editor not to send a lynch mob round. And then he does corrections. <laughs> there are no second drafts with me. I don't have time. Look, well, by the time I've finished about 96,000 words, which is what about one of my novels is, right. you know, it's a nice short novel and it still takes me like the best part of two years to write. I'm so tired of the bloody thing. I never want to see it again. I'm not going to go back and rewrite it except when someone from outside has demanded it because like the spellings all messed up. And that's why, it, it, do you think that's why you're a 500 word a day man? Is that no, I, I think it's because I'm incredibly lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I think the causal relationship is the other way around. I'm a 500 word per word man. That is why I hate bloody rewriting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think you're making the causal relationship doesn't work the other way. I think the causal okay. relationship is that way around. No, I, I mean, I'm not a draft person. Some people are draft people. Some people, uh, the answer is yes. Um, I, if you find yourself doing a fourth draft, you've done too many drafts. Really? Four? Just four drafts? I would say four is, I would go two, but I, some people like to redraft. Yeah. And, you know, you can redraft and you can redraft, but I would submit, I would, for a first book, okay, there, there's a difference, right? There's a difference between that first thing you're selling and 
what you're doing when you you are an established author. So for a first book, yeah, four or five drafts, whatever it takes to get it right. Okay, don't go too mad, but don't, you know, so I would say uh, if you've done more than four drafts, you've got to start asking yourself, are you just putting off submission? Right. Right? But yeah, because like you nearly always want to go back and chop at least 2,000 words out of the first three chapters because it's drags. You know, and, and, you know, go, oh, does this work? Make sure you've got no spelling mistakes. Cause the first draft has to be, you know, cause someone has to read those first three chapters and think that, that, you know, and not think to themselves, Oh God, my life is over. I want to kill myself without <laughs> boredom. Right. You got to remember that some poor sod has to read this when it arrives at an office. Yeah. And you, I don't need to tell you this. Right. And they are not doing it full of glee. They're not <laughs> thinking to themselves, yay. Another manuscript, <laughs> right? They are thinking, oh, God, I've got this pile of manuscripts that I've got to read on the tube back to whatever godforsaken suburb they live in, <laughs> right? And and on a Kindle probably nowadays. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's a PDF on a Kindle, so it's not even very well formatted. And you have better fucking entertain them in the first two chapters, is all I'm going to say, because they otherwise are just going to go... And you can generally tell. So you've got to make sure those first two chapters at least are nice and crisp, if nothing else. Yeah. And I, but I wouldn't, if, it, if I found myself, if I think if I, someone told me, even my fast writing friends, that they were on redraft number five, mm-hmm. I would be a bit dubious. Now, once you're a professional writer, that's a slightly different thing. One thing you're more experienced. So you draft as many times as you feel is necessary, which in my case is none. Right, because I'm going to hand it over to an editor who's going to come up with notes. So I don't see why I should do their job. <laughs> what the hell are they getting paid for? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, Gillian, she's a lovely woman. She gets paid money to edit my work. I don't see why I have to edit it. <laughs> I, you know, what's, I think it's, and anyway, I think it's presumptuous of me to, to prejudge <laughs> what Gillian might want changed. That does sound like prevarication to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's presumptuous. It's much easier to, um, and also sometimes you're very close to the work. That's one of the reasons why I, I mean, I actually pay a friend to, uh, on a chapter by chapter basis, edit my work. Right. Okay. So, because, um, it's just very useful because A, my grammar is crap. My spelling is terrible. Um, so it's useful to have A, someone who knows how to spell and do grammar where the commas go i'm all right on the, i'm getting better but i'm always having a problem with commas yeah so um i have somebody help me with the commas I, it's not so much that they put them in the right place it's that knowing that they're going to do it stops you from doing that thing where you write a sentence and then go does the comma go there or does the comma go there yeah, yeah. so I, I instead of doing that i just go oh well andrew will fix it <laughs> and actually andrew doesn't need to fix it as often as he needed to like like six books ago but <laughs> It just, it's just, it's like a, it's like a, it's like working with a safety net. It's just very useful. Um, and so therefore my books to a certain extent are edited as they go along. So uh, by me as well. I mean, I go back and I change things. I, I lose about 20% of the prose that I write. I keep track of it. I lose. So I have a 96,000 word, about 20,000 words. 25,000 words. Not in big chunks, though. Some people see... That's the difference. A, a, a writing revised person will write 120,000 words and then cut out 40,000 words to make a 90-whatever yeah. like novel, right? I will cut out sentences. I will do it at the individual sentence level, and then when I add it all up, it comes to about 20,000 words. Okay. 
Um, and so that's the kind of difference. And you have to know, the Christian is you have to really know who am I? What is my style? And then you adapt your writing technique to the style that you have. You have to find your own, in the same way that you have to find your own voice, you have to find your own writing rhythm. Some people like to get up in the morning. Some people write at night. Some people write in cafes. Some people like, you know, like are obsessive. Some people like only one computer facing east on, you know, <laughs> uh, whatever, whatever. No, there is no right way of doing it. So whatever works, basically, whatever gets the thing done. But, and this is the important review in your bloody 55,000 word <laughs> bloody outline, right? Done is the word, okay? 55,000 word outline is not done right <laughs> chapter one oh now we're doing chapter two that's done okay right <laughs> outline is just pissing about okay <laughs> so fifty thousand words that's that's you know that's scrivener's way of telling you you should be getting on with the bloody novel i don't know and the characters because you don't even know what the characters are going to be like until you've done the serious writing well that's that's what we're finding out I mean, yeah that's what we're, and we're... you can do the outline won't tell you Right, because it's an outline. The outline is the easy bit. By definition, all that lovely prose you're writing in your outline, that's the low-hanging fruit. That's not what's going to slow you up. That's not what's going to keep you awake. That's not going to have you banging your head gently on the table in front of your computer. <laughs> right? What's going to have you gently is really stupid things. Like you're going to go, now how do I get them from this location yeah. right, to that location? What's the freaking transition? I mean, like, because I'm so bored. I can't just go, you know, dot, dot, dot. And can I give you a word of advice on that one? It's from a Somerset Mill yes. story, right? Yeah. And this, I, I recite this to you. It's like a little mantra. Somerset Mill story. And I can't remember what it is. In one of the stories, it goes, they went back to the hotel and the next morning, and then I can't remember what they, what they did the next morning. But my point being is, is that you don't have to go back to the hotel, detail what they eat. No, no. <laughs> have them wake up and go out. You can do that in one sentence. And that's something you can't do in film. Yeah. Right? You can't do it in radio and you can't do it in comics, but you can do it in prose. And you can have a seamless thing like that. You can annihilate time with an and, with a conjunction. You can annihilate time. That's a very, 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 very useful thing to be able to do. And a lot of the time, you will spend a lot of your time trying to get from one scene to the other. And actually, all you have to go is, and then they went to that place. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and that, believe it or not, is what takes all the time. You're writing. It's things like that. You know, whether the characters are paranoid, schizophrenic, uh, with mother issues, right? That's not what takes time when you're writing. <laughs> Transitions is what takes time. Finding new ways of describing people yeah, <laughs> takes time. Thinking, how do you convey that sensation when you look up at a house and it looks like it's going to fall on your face without saying that and then going, you know, he looked up at the house and he had a terrible sensation it was going to fall on his face. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's working your sort of way through that. That is what is going to take you the time. And you guys are putting it off because you know that, right? So <laughs> get on with bloody chapter one. 
Okay, because I would be amazed. I would be amazed if half the stuff in that outline makes it into the novel. Oh yeah, yeah, me too. Right, yeah, so stop writing the bloody novel outline. Get on with this. So, oh, you're not going to make your deadline. You're just not. <laughs> well, we have we have written the first three chapters. We have written the first back three. in episode three or four. I was saying we need a Madam Whiplash. I think we've actually found it. <laughs> yes, I will. I will. You know, because you just need. I'm going to follow you now, and I'm gonna, every time I'm going to tweet you. <laughs> this is going to be great. We're going to have like a fish. Have you started chapter one yet? Have you started chapter one yet? I'm going to do that. I'm going to do. I'm going to. I can do a bot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just do that automatically at intervals until you bloody. You can start. be. You can be our accountability author. There you go. I'd yeah. love that. We'd and love then that. when you've done that, I'm going to go. I'm just going to change like to chapter two. Reset the bot. <laughs> Seriously, because this is the only way you're going to get a book out. Because you set yourself, and I understand the, the impulse. You know, even though I deplore the motive, right? <laughs> Okay, but you have to you have to get the book written because you you know you you this is a hard thing and you yeah. you are going to have to revise it if you want a bestseller. You guys are going to have to. Revise. I can tell you guys are revisers, right? Oh, yeah. So you're going to need to get that done. But you see, you should be able to write this novel with between the two of you in in less than three months. Yeah, I mean, how long is it going to be? You don't want it to be too long, so it's going to be what between eighty and ninety. Yeah, so you should be able to write this in three months. The problem was, though, Ben, that was the idea when we started off this experiment. We gave ourselves fifty-two weeks, and we thought, well, we'll do this funny little podcast to go alongside it, and then we'll spend most of our time writing the book. Problem is. Podcast yeah, gone bananas. Oh, really? Oh, procrastination. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Maybe that's what it is, Mark. Maybe no, the whole podcast is just no, a big procrastination. You've had time to write 55,000 words, right? If you hadn't bothered with the outline, you'd be almost finished by now. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think what we've got is a very, a very good skeleton of a story. And, yes. uh, and it needs texture adding on it. What That's you what haven't got is a novel. No, 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 no. I'm not saying we have yet. No, we haven't. We haven't. No, no. We will. So there is, like I said, you know, either write the novel or don't write the novel. There is no fucking outline. This is, this is, <laughs> <laughs> this outlines, outlines are for producers and, you know, well, television folk. That's probably going right? to come from a script world. That's, that's where I'm at. This is, background. The, you know, so this is the, to procrastinate further, guys, um, I have suddenly realised we've got to announce our Brian Cranston competition winner. Oh, and okay. we were wondering, Ben, as you're with us in the studio, um, I've got this incredible little device here. We've got all the people who've entered, and I press a magic button, and it kind of randomly picks somebody out of that list. Okay. And I'm going to I'm going to press a button and send you the name. Are you would you be willing to read it out for us, the winner? So, Mark, remind people what they're going to get. You're going to get a signed copy of uh, my A Life in Parts, Brian Cranston's autobiography, which he very kindly signed for us when we met him last year, and also a signed pair of tighty whitey underpants. He signed them right on the crotch. Uh, one of a kind. <laughs> uh, this is a real prize to savour, people. Uh, something to cherish and frame and show your friends when they come round. So this is a real unique prize. So yeah, yeah, proper one-off. Excellent stuff. So I'm going to press the button now. And Ben, if you look on your screen there, okay. uh, on the uh, little window, I'd like you to announce who the winner is. And the winner is Josh Atkinson. No way. Hey, congratulations, Josh. So you'll be getting a pair of underpants in the post very soon. Obviously, warn the postman just in case. But uh, congratulations. Thank you to everyone who entered the competition. We we literally had thousands of entries. And I was just wondering, Mark, have we got something of Ben's to give away? 
Yes, we have. I'm sorry. I just uh, Josh is one of our our our, our most tweeted tweeters. Uh, he tweets us pretty much every day with his word count. So, uh, Josh, I actually, if I'm just going to delegate the nagging them to write chapter one to you. So, <laughs> if you could just start every day's tweet with "Have you written chapter one yet?" Um, ben wants to know if you've written chapter one yet. I'd be really grateful. That will save me, and I, that that will stop it from being my procrastination, and I will get on with my book, and everyone will be happy. <laughs> We've got we've got a, co- a paperback copy of The Hanging Tree, which is the later Peter Grant uh, novel from Ben. Uh, and Ben, could we ask you to kindly sign that for us, and then we'll uh, we'll run that as a as a giveaway as well. I think that's time to wrap it up, isn't it, Mr. D? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we just wanted to say thank you to everyone for checking in. We've been well and truly in the ring with the uh, liter- literary version of Mike Tyson today. So <laughs> could I have to go off and, and reevaluate what on earth we're doing? Um, but if you would like to get along to our website, we have all this incredible advice from all of the authors that have been on the show with us. Uh, and it will be updated with and all this incredible advice we've had today from Ben. And it's called The Vault of Gold. So if you get along to the website, you can uh, join the mailing list and download a copy of that. And actually, Mark, I think that book, The Vault of Gold, is is actually, is that longer than our actual outline? (laughs) It's 50,000 words long. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I rest rest my case. So there we go. We've written two half books. And uh, so pop along to the website, download it. (laughs) I I just want to add as well, um, at the time of recording, it's 1st of February when we record this, uh, our guest from a few weeks ago, Sarah Pimbra, is number two in the Sunday Times bestseller list. She came on this show. She had, you know, she had... She was really nervous, didn't know whether or not it was going to chart or not. And we are over the moon for us. A huge congratulations congratulations to Sarah. And we do have a contest running as well, a giveaway running to win a signed copy of her book, Behind Her Eyes. For a fact that Sarah Pimber is already 30,000 words into the next novel. Okay, thanks everyone for listening. Um, you can get in touch with us at bestsellerexperiment.com. We're on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment, Twitter at Bestseller XP. Where can we find you, Mr. Aronovich? Um, you can find me in bookshops. No, I'm, I'm on Twitter <laughs> I, I, under at Ben Aronovich with an underscore. Um, uh, and I have a blog and a Facebook page that is, I admit is actually run by somebody else because I'm crap at Facebook. But I do look at it. I just don't know what all the buttons do. <laughs> Excellent. Ben, I just want to ask you before we go, you know, I have one of these very um, elongated surnames. It's, the surname is DeVoe and people have mispronounced it all my life. I looked at your surname and that double A, I was wondering, was that anything to do with yellow pages or is that for real? No, um, I, it was a very common name in Lithuania. Um, it was a Lithuanian Jewish name. And my parents, uh, my parents, my, my, my dad's, parents um emigrated from there at about 1900 they were pogromed in in 1900 and um there were quite a lot of people called aronovich because it just means son of aaron which is a common name assigned to jews when they were given surnames and yeah. everybody else changed their name except for my parents basically so <laughs> for some reason right. so uh we are the only aronoviches in london even though we actually had quite a lot of relatives who came over at the same time had the same name they, they changed their names to jones and brown and stuff like that so I mean, uh, yeah it's, no, the double a is great it's always got me at the front of the list um i was gonna say brilliant positioning and i i i pronounce it aronovich when i want to annoy people <laughs> <laughs> they say what's your name ah. I, I did the russian aronovich i am aronovich 
Don't forget. Oh, brilliant. Well, Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you for making us laugh Thank you. until our sides split. En- enjoy the and, snow. And uh, we will get we will get this novel done. We we are absolutely going to kick some butt with this novel. Yeah, 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 yeah. I believe and, that. Uh, and you'll be one of the first. To, we'll send you. We'll send you like a. Uh, I don't we'll want to see it while you're page. writing it. No, I just want to know you've done it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not interested in your bloody novel in bits. I do that enough of my own stuff. I'll read it when it's finished. I just want to know you've done chapter two. Excellent. Okay. Brilliant stuff. Thank you so much, Ben. We really appreciate it. Until next week, it's goodbye from Mark One. And it's goodbye from Mark Two. Goodbye. Goodbye. To read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two Marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe.